How many of you like vacation? Like to get away? All of you, but three. Okay, good. So <laughs> you like to get away, right? And you're familiar with that. <clears throat> that of, it's coming up close. Nancy and I are going on vacation in a couple of weeks, and we're very excited. I can't wait to get away from you guys. I mean, I can't wait to, to get a break. <laughs> and so you know what it's like, right? The enthusiasm as you get on your way. Picture just for a moment uh, Israel. God required them to gather three times a year in Jerusalem for these festivals, great festivals. And so they came from all over the country. You can imagine the excitement because the festivals were designed to make them laugh, to be filled with joy, to have a lot of fun. And uh, to remind them of who God is and what he had done. So on their way, they're probably hooking up with families and other clans, meeting, maybe meeting people on the road that they knew. And God promised while they gathered those three times a year, he would take care of their flocks and their crops. They had nothing to worry about. They could relax and they could celebrate. And they were told to celebrate. For example, the festival of tabernacles, uh, they all, all the people in Jerusalem moved out of their homes into these tents to remind them of what it was like for during the 40 years when God took care of them wandering through the desert. And so the part of the uh, festival was eight days long. The rabbis tell us that the, they danced and sang 24 hours a day. The candles were lit and it was just a great time of celebration and singing. They um, And as they got closer to Jerusalem and they made their way to the temple, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent or the Praise Psalms. So you can imagine just coming together and singing. I, I said in the first service it was really fun because when we started, this is so Summit County, I have no problem with it. I've gotten used to it. I love it. Eight people were here when they started singing. And by the time we finished, there was more people than we have right here. And it was just wild. And as I start coming through the door, I was standing in the back. People are humming what they're singing. And that gave me a picture of what it was like to gather together and kind of walk the steps of the temple singing these psalms of praise. And that's what Christianity is all about. I'm going to argue today that Christianity is a religion of joy. But how could it be a religion of joy when our primary symbol is the cross? And we have so much brokenness and hurt around the world. That's, how do we live with that tension of the joy? And yet we're aware of people dying around the world every day. Uh, sex trafficking, you name it, all those areas. And yet somehow we have to navigate that. So last week I introduced the concept of a flourishing community. And I argued that it was essential for us to really bring the kingdom out to this world. And we began to talk about it. We're going to continue that discussion today. We're going to ask the question, is Christianity actually a religion of joy or a religion of suffering? Mark, when he started the whole discussion of, uh, three weeks ago, he helpfully laid out the competition of causes, which is a fantastic way to start this whole for or against series. Because our country... Uh, honestly, I, I, I assume you agree with me. It's more divided and hostile than ever. The tensions are at an all-time high. Um, and people are just, boy, they're at each other's throats. If if you bother to read to the headlines every day, it's just amazing to me uh, how vitriolic, how vicious, how angry we can be. And um, all the anxiety and the, the worry and the struggle and all of that. So he laid out three causes that are driving a lot of what's happening in our culture. I think it was wonderful. One was autonomy. Yeah, people like to be in charge. I mean, we are 
we are Westerners. We're Americans. We made our living on rebellion. Right? That's what I said when I was over in England. That's what I said. I said, I finally understand my country after spending seven weeks in Cambridge. And all these older British scholars said, and how's that? And I said, well, we're like teenagers. We just haven't gotten it out of our system yet. We rebelled for mom and dad a couple hundred years ago and left and came over here. And we've been rebelling ever since. And they all laughed and they said, boy, that so describes the United States. You know, because they're very settled and stayed in their ways and not us. Well, that's not our country at all. And so we have this autonomy where we like to have our own independence and be in charge of ourselves. And I mean, we are, we are individualistic to the core. That's one of the things we are constantly fighting in the church is that the church is a, is a, our religion is a community religion, not an individualistic religion. And so we're always trying to offset that. But that drives so much of our causes. The second one he gave was safety. I had to laugh at that one. I mean, we bubble wrap everything today. You know, when I grew up as a boy, it was real simple. I got home from college, uh, school, junior high or whatever, elementary school even. I took off with my buddies and my mom didn't care. The rule was, she didn't know where I was. The rule was be home by dark. And if I wasn't home, she started calling all the moms. Where's, uh, have you seen my son? And um, we went out and played. We played army and construction fences around construction sites. They were the perfect place to play. You could fall in ditches, break your leg. It didn't matter. And my mom never worried. If I broke my leg, we just went to the hospital and... They fixed it, right? I was wrestling with my brother, and, and um, I broke his arm. And my mom had two simple rules. You can fight all you want as boys. There were four boys, but no weapons. And the second rule is don't touch the girls. We had two girls. So I broke my brother's arm. Mom said, okay, let's go to the hospital. But man, oh man, put a bruise on my sister, and it was over. Her life was over. And so we got to just go play. We got to play all the time, and we didn't care. We fell into ditches and scratched ourselves and cut ourselves and, you know, never thought about seatbelts. I remember when the first car came out with seatbelts, we all wanted to ride in the front seat where they had seatbelts because we'd never seen them before. And uh, it was pretty amazing. Safety, it drives so much of our causes today. Compassion, that was the third one. Compassion, and I would argue that that's a, uh, for my opinion, a fake one. Uh, I look at the way we organize around compassion, and I'm not convinced it's authentic when I read all of the headlines day after day after day. And we're going to talk more about some of this a little bit later on. But we've organized our country along causes. And so if you don't agree with my cause, then you're out. And we're on two sides of the fence. And I think that's the wrong way to, to construct this whole argument. But first, let's go back and remember the metaphor that we're using throughout the series for or against. I brought up the idea of we are made in the image of God, therefore we have dignity. That means that everyone deserves to be treated well. And I raised the idea of you, you wake up and you look out over a field of snow and this virgin snow and the sun's coming up. And you know what it looks like, the refraction of light and all of the beautiful colors. And then you're standing there and you hear this retching sound. And you look down and you see a drunk, an alcoholic, laying here. Um, he's got his eyes rolled back in his head, hasn't bathed in forever. And, and he's, uh, you know, vomited all over himself. Where do you see God the clearest? There or here? Only one is made in the image of God. Here. This is where you see God declares every human is worthy of dignity and respect. And we are on a journey, every one of us. And so that's how I started this whole to get us into this mess. So we came up with a metaphor of a pot. So there's four stages on the image of God in Scripture. When God made the two humans, he looked at him and said, wow, 
that they are very good. Look at that. Just look at how beautiful they are. It's incredible. The crowning moment of creation were these two humans. He made everything else for the sake of these two humans. They are incredible. There's that pot. It's perfect. And then we send. Drop the pot. So phase one is we have a perfect pot. Phase two is we have a bunch of broken pottery on the ground. And the Old Testament after Genesis 9 goes silent and doesn't say anything more about the image of God until you get to the New Testament. When you get to the New Testament, it presents, it raises this image again. But now we have a different picture. Jesus is putting the pieces of the pot back together. And that's our lives. So he starts gluing. You can see the cracks in it. And we're still missing some pieces. And I said, if you get close to me, you will see the cracks in my pot. If you want to know what they are, just ask Nancy. She'll be glad to tell you. More than happy to tell my kids. Oh, they'd even love it more to tell you what the pots are like. Missing chunks here and there. That's what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ as we're being restored in our humanity. So we are a cracked pot. That's the third category, third phase. And then the fourth phase is glory. And by the way, just my own personal thought, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of insight into this, but I think our pots in glory, you're still going to see each other's cracks. It's just that they're now good. And we're fully functioning again. We can say, oh, that's what you were like before you were redeemed. And so you, we can see each other. But we're in this third phase where the Lord is putting the pieces back together and gluing the pot back together so that you can recognize it. And all that to say, as we get into these tough discussions the rest of this year and next year, uh, at the, on the very best day, it's going to be challenging. On the very best day, because we are cracked pots, it's going to be hard discussions. And we're not going to agree on things. I've said many times that I have no idea what to think about the wall. That's a strategy question. I can tell you what I think about immigration, because this book is filled with language of it. And you're going to see some of it today. It's filled with language of immigration. And what God thinks about migrations of people groups and why he does it. Uh, But the wall is a strategy question. That's not my field. I've never read anything on it. And quite honestly, I don't care to. (laughs) You know, let people bigger and smarter and higher up the chain than me take care of the problem. If they do it right, okay, great. If they do it wrong, okay, they made a mistake. I don't know. And so these are going to be tough conversations, some of them as we get into them, because we all have opinions on things. That's because we are cracked pots. So we're going to argue consistently, as we've been arguing already, as we get down below the strategy and policy level, and we start talking about what does it mean as a theologian or a theist or a Christian, what does that look like? What does the Bible say? Then we can learn to have good conversations. So last week I raised the Jeremiah 29. Here's the story of Jeremiah 29. They have, the southern kingdom had been deported to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. So the northern kingdom's gone. It's already gone. Southern kingdom's been deported. And so now they're scattered among uh, Babylon. And the false prophets of Israel were saying to the people, because they're discouraged. Who wants to go to a land where you can't speak the language? And you're stuck there and you can't get out. And so the false prophets are saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Within two years, God's going to crush Nebuchadnezzar. And we're all going to come back. And the glory of the Lord is going to return. Life's going to be good. So God had Jeremiah go and write a letter and say, uh, yeah, that's not going to You're going to be here 70 years. Get used to it. That's what he said. That's my decision. 
You're going to be here 70 years. Partly, partly because they had sinned. Partly. So he exiled them. But that's not the full reason. Because in Jeremiah 29, he says, when you go into the city where I'm taking you, okay, seek the peace toward the very end. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so God had another, this is that turning lemons into lemonade that we just sang about. God had ulterior motives. He had agendas underneath the surface. Yes, they had sinned, and so he used their sin as an opportunity to scatter them so that they would begin to bless the nations where they went. This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless all the nations through you and your descendants. And so that's why he said, seek the prosperity of the city where you're going. If it prospers, you will too. And we get one of our very earliest pictures in this book of what it means to be in a hostile engagement. They're on enemy soil. And they're told to seek the welfare, the peace, the shalom, the prosperity of the city. And so this is one of the earliest pictures of what our responsibility is as a church. Seek the prosperity of our county right here. And if you're a visitor, to seek the prosperity of wherever you come from. Because when it prospers, we prospers. Or as the Proverbs say, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And so as we help our own people, our neighbors, our friends, the people we run into in the grocery stores, the restaurants, the coffee shops. I see people all the time that I say hi to them. They don't go. I just know them because we live here. As we seek their good, we are blessed. And that's the beginning of understanding a flourishing community. So last week I raised a couple of things. One is a flourishing community starts with the idea that we're willing to trust the Holy Spirit. That's why when we do our planning process, I listen to all the leadership teams. Start dreaming. What do you want? To the mothers of the children. They're your children. They're not mine. What do you want? This is your church. It's not mine. What do you want for your church? We ask those questions of all of our leadership teams. But then we asked a second question, and, and I said last week, if you go behind the wall into our offices, these are one of the conversations Mark and I have regularly, some f- form of this question. How might Jesus' teaching, or how might the teachings of Jesus be understood as a revolution? As a revolution. You have to get used to the idea that Jesus is countering the world. Okay? You have to get used to that idea. Example, do all things without grumbling or complaining. How many of you grumble and complain? Probably all of you. That's the world. Okay? You can start with this premise. If the world tells you something, they're wrong. That's where I start. I read the headlines, as you, most of you know, almost every day. Now I read them because it makes me smile. And I read a headline, you know, of, and here's what I think. Whatever it says in the headline, I stop and I do this regularly. What is the opposite? Because that's probably true. That's how I think about it. Okay. Whatever the world tells me, it's not going to be in keeping unless we have done our job to teach them ethics. And then they're going to repeat back to us what we have taught them. 
So here's the question. How might the teachings of Jesus be understood as a revolution in our ethics, in the way we live our lives, leading to a permanent change here in our attitudes and behaviors? This is the beginning point right here. Look at each other. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, this is it right here. We're the beginning point of reflecting the kingdom to these people that are lost that are confused, they're tired, they're lonely. This is it. And if we don't have our act together, we've already lost, shot ourselves in the foot already, just with that. In order for flourishing to occur here, we need to make it plausible. We need to demonstrate to the world our love for them. I left you last week with this question. The, the new commandment, he says, the new commandment, John 13, I give to you is that everyone, uh, is that uh, you love one another as I love you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have the right doctrine. That's not what he says, is it? If you have the right political viewpoint. That's not what he says. No, he says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you have authentic, genuine love which the world is so desperate for. When Nancy and I moved back here, here, when we moved back to Colorado, um, our son, I don't know, was 13, 14, something like that. And so uh, we started looking for churches. And I told Nancy, I don't care if they teach heresy. I already know my theology. They can teach whatever they want. I don't care. What I care about is that they love my son. Because if they love my son, he's going to be solid in his faith and that's true. So we're going to church, another church, another church. Doctrine's all good, and I'm bored to tears. So I walk into one church, and I'm standing in the foyer looking in, and then all of a sudden these big arms go around me, and this guy lifts me off the ground. And he says, I heard there was a Dr. Howard sighting. I turn around, it's one of my students. So he starts to talk to me. He says, hey, I'm glad you're here. Hey, who are you? And points to my son. And my son says, Drew. And he says, hey, Drew, afterwards, uh, uh, a bunch of us, I'm taking a bunch of the, the teenagers out for tacos. If your parents let you, you want to go? He looks at me. Dad, can I go? I said, have fun. So I found my church. I really don't care what they teach. (laughs) Because I know my own theology. Now, all that to say, I'm not trying to teach you heresy up here. Okay? (laughs) I work really hard to really present truth. But underneath all of that, it's only as good as the love that we show one another. That's what Jesus was saying. That's where I left you last week. We have to make it plausible. We have to make it demonstrable. We have to show the world that our love is authentic and genuine in everything that we do, starting with the way we have our own discussions. So when we talk about immigration and migration, we talk about war, we get into these topics, it's very important. We are cracked pots, which means we're not going to do it perfectly. But it's very important how we model this to the world around us. This is foundational to help our own county grow and help. And what is flourishing? And I'm going to argue this. The definition of flourishing, it has some pieces to it. But at its core, it's when what we say we believe matches what we actually live life, the way we live life. So if we say that we shouldn't complain, that's an easy one because you're all guilty. If we say that we shouldn't complain, quit complaining. It's not, as Mark says, rocket surgery. Quit complaining. Catch yourself and stop it. Ask your spouse and your friends and your children. Every time you hear me complain, help me stop. Learn how not to complain. 
We have nothing to complain about. I don't really care who the president is. I vote my conscience like you, but I believe what it says. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I go back a lot of presidents, and there's something I love and hate about every single one. Somewhere along the way, I let go and said, yeah, fine, whatever you want to do, God. I'll vote. I write letters when I disagree, you know, with something. Quit complaining. There's an example. When the world sees us match up our life with our theology, then they say, wow. Because what Jesus teaches is countercultural. It's revolutionary in every way. And as we learn to be authentic, then the community begins to look. So what is a flourishing community like? And I think it has three aspects to it. Number one is that a community, a healthy community, is where we live life well. Right here. We live it well. We, the way we conduct ourselves here, the way we conduct ourselves in society, we have the right attitudes, regardless of the circumstances. Look what he says in First Peter. This is what Peter says. Live such good lives among the pagans. And pagans is not a derogatory term. That just means that they don't believe in Christ. So, <clears throat> live such good lives among those who don't believe in Christ, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, which they will, they can see your good deeds, and they will end up glorifying God on the day he returns, he visits us. They'll see the truth by looking at us. That's what we're like. So living life well. The second one is we are to live at peace. This is the idea of shalom. We've talked about that many times. It's a sense of well-being. It's not the absence of conflict or tension. We live with that. It's the fact that we care for one another. That together we make each other better than when we're apart. That we are happier and better because we live life together. That's what it means to live at peace. It reflects our confidence in the Lord, our true belief in Him. Look what Paul says in Ephesians. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live like a Christian. That's what he's saying. Be completely humble, not mostly humble. Work on humility. Ask your spouse if you're humble. You should do that. About once a year, I sit down with Nancy and say, do you think I'm arrogant or do you think I'm humble? Where do you see that look? Where does that come out? You know? Um, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity that the Spirit brought about. Here it is. Through the bond of peace. Shalom. Paul starts every letter. Grace and peace. Shalom. We were made to live at rest, not anxious. You really have nothing to worry about. You really don't. You can have things you disagree with. I have no problem with that. But you don't have to worry. God is bigger than all of this. It's hard to, it's hard to learn that. It's hard to drive that, that thought down deep inside to where you can wake up in the morning refreshed and relaxed. And when you read the headlines, you laugh at them. Psalm 2, the Lord laughs at our feeble attempts. Well, we should laugh too. No, our Congress doesn't know how to do it right. Don't expect them to. They really don't. They're doing the best they can. Maybe. <laughs> I'll let you decide. The third thing is that 
a healthy community is a community where we demonstrate joy. Christianity is a religion of joy. But I said, how can it be so? Well, let's look first of all at the passages that describe us. One is in Deuteronomy 16. Coming to the festivals. Be joyful at your festivals. Your sons, you, your daughters, your male and female servants, Levites, the foreigners. You get that, the foreigners? We're going to see more of that. The fatherless, the widows who live in your towns. Be joyful. That's why we come together. They should look at us and see us laughing and dancing. Oh, we cry together when people are hurting. But at the core, we are celebrating something beyond this broken world. Uh, David goes on in Psalm 16. He knew that joy was found in the Lord's presence. You make known to me the path of life, God. You will fill me with joy in your presence. There it is, joy with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 16. This describes our response to this one true living God. Or Luke 1, when Mary found out she was pregnant, here's how she started her song. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I'm rejoicing because we have a Savior. Or Luke 2, the famous story of the angels coming to the shepherds. Angels said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for you. No, what does it say? Everyone. Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Everyone. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, known as Jesus. That's what people need to hear. You have a Savior who cares about you. His name is Jesus. That's what they need to hear. Or, Paul says in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And then here's where we started. Psalm 96. Look at how encompassing joy is. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant. Jubilant. And everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all of creation. Everything. That's including us. All of creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth, the world, in righteousness and faithfulness. We can trust him. We can trust him. So then I raise the question, but how can we demonstrate joy when all around us is suffering? In fact, woven between all those passages are examples of brutality, brokenness, horror, pain. And we are asked to be joyful people in the midst of a world that is so tired and hurting. How is that possible? Well, it's precisely at this point that we impact society in a very significant way. Precisely at this point. You see, the Bible talks about two kinds of joy. One of them is related to elation, celebration, what we think of happiness. It's when things go well. You all know what I'm talking about. Something goes really well and you're blessed. Happiness. But there's another kind of joy that's related to affliction and distress. That's when things do not go well. In, one, in the first case, uh, it's, it's an expression of joy because of our experience. And in the second case, in the Bible, it's an expression of joy in spite of our situation. 
Now, every time we have communion, I, I say to you, if you want to come up and pray with any of us, come pray. You have a prayer request. Maybe something serious is happening. Or I say you have a praise. Those are two sides of this coin of which joy is existing in. How do we navigate this difference? And I'm going to argue that both of them are critical for us to flourish. Because we are demonstrating to a world what genuine joy looks like. Joy in the happiness, that's when things go well, motivates us to rebel against a life that is destroyed. This is where over the centuries Christians have stood up with courage to defeat those who are evil. Okay, It makes us stand up and say, that is not right. We shouldn't do that. And so joy, it's the happiness that we experience that side when things go well that give us the calibration, the standard that helps us to say this other experience is not right. Because what we're experiencing in our happiness is what we are created for. Love, joy, peace, patience, fruit of the Spirit. So that gives us a standard, if you will. But in contrast to that, when things don't go the way we want, that joy that we experience demonstrates our solid belief in an authentic and life-giving experience with God because it involves hope. We're not stuck here. We're not stuck here. I've said over and over and over again up here, if your marriage is in trouble or you're struggling with sin, don't feel shame. Come get help. You don't have to stay where you are. You don't have to stay there. So joy serves two purposes. It helps us to recognize what is not what God intended and do something about it. And it helps us to recognize that I genuinely have hope. I don't believe I'm going to stay here. Stuck in this problem. You don't have to stay here. That's why Christ came. To pull us out of it. When you put them together, this is something the world cannot see except by looking at us. They can only see it by looking at us. When I stood up here three years ago and told you I had bladder cancer, the, before that happened, uh, Nancy and I sat and cried together. I don't want cancer. <laughs> it's not like I'm looking for it. I don't want cancer. So we cried together. And then I kind of got this smirk on my face. Hmm. Okay, God, you've already demonstrated to me, proven to me that my faith is real. You've taken me through a whole lot. <clears throat> I know my faith is real. Therefore, this is not about me. <clears throat> what are you doing with my church? That's a question that floated to the surface 10 minutes after Nancy and I sat down. It's not about me anymore. What are you doing with my church, with these people here? And the staff said, you got to get up and tell the church. I got up and told you. You see... When you turn to Christ, you become a billboard, a prop, something that the Lord can use to show people what grace looks like, what his deep and authentic love looks like. That's what happens. And that is what we have trouble grasping, is that the Lord wants to use us. Somewhere along the line, I don't know what happened, Somewhere along the line, I got used to that idea. And it's like, okay, I have no idea what's going to happen this week. I could die. I could be maimed. I could find out I have cancer again. I have no idea what's going to happen. But I do know this. My hope is authentic. I believe in the goodness of the Lord. It's no longer about me. I don't have to ask the question, why anymore? It's about you. 
about my children. It's about my wife. It's about my friends. It's about people I care about that I meet in the grocery store every week. That's what it's about. And he's going to use me. That's what a flourishing community is. They can look at us and see what they can't see anywhere else. And they are desperate for meaning, significance, love, hope, joy. And when they look at DCC, our church, here's what they should say. The first thing out of their mouth. Why are those people filled with so much joy? That becomes a mystery. Because most of them don't experience it. And that should be part of that journey to move toward us and say, how is it you experience joy? You had cancer. How do you experience joy? You lost your first wife. That's my story. How do you experience joy? They go together, as Mark says, in tension. I told you before, when Judy died, I was 25, my first wife. And I started to cry. I was holding her when her heart stopped. I won't ever forget it. The tears started to flow. And then I started to laugh. And I said, the Lord just took away the most important person to me in the world. And I still believe in him. My faith is real. 30 years later, I meet up with her doctor again. And he says, I came to faith because of you and your wife. It's not about me. It's about you. It's about you. The nourishing community. A couple of closing thoughts. We are a public faith. We're not a private faith. Our faith is meant to be lived out. It's meant to be lived out organically right here between each other. We're to care for one another. If you've got something against each other, set it aside. It's really not that important. Not in the long run. Or come get help and we'll help you mediate and process it. We're a public faith. We are meant to be used by God to show a tired world what true hope and joy and love looks like. The second thing is that we are not a religion of politics. This is where we are unique. We're not a religion of politics. Our citizenship is where? Where? Say it. It's in heaven. Philippians. Philippians. We are people who care about these people right here. We love them. We're not a religion of politics. We're a religion of joy. Meant to be lived out. Father, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for helping us understand and navigate a very uh, harsh, broken world. But yet knowing by faith that because of the same spirit who raised your son from the dead, we have that same power to love these people well and to teach them about you. Thank you for your goodness. You are a good God. In your name we pray. Amen. Can I ask the ushers to come take the offering? Like I say every week, thanks for being generous. You guys are great. You take good care of us. Thank you.
to complete it. He who started a work will be faithful to complete it in you. He who began a good work in members, you know what's coming. I need uh, four teams up here to get the bread and the cup ready. So come on up. And if you'd like to uh, either pray with people or just rejoice with them and greet them, come, come on up as well. So come on up and get us ready. You know, when we look at joy, especially in light of the cross, we have a passage that helps us understand it. It's a passage about Jesus. It's in Hebrews 12. He's telling us that we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Therefore, run the race well. Run it with endurance. But then he talks about Jesus. He said, calls him the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that shows us what true faith looks like. And here's what he said. Uh, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He kind of had a choice. He chose the cross because that's where the true joy was going to come. Why? Because of what happened to us. Our sin was forgiven. So the way to true joy was through the cross. Here are those two types of joy in one verse. He endured the cross. He scorned its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners... So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There's a picture right there. Of those two types of joy. You see ultimately joy is related not to our own pleasure. That's hedonism. The truest joy comes because of what happens to others. When God uses us. That's how we can be a joy of religion. Oh we love the blessing. Don't get me wrong. I love it. But we also love the impact. That when the Lord uses us. 30 years later, when Judy's doctor said, I came to faith because of you and your wife. It's overflowing joy that made it worthwhile. And that's how we can be a religion of joy in the midst of the cross. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it. said, this is why my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. There's that forgiveness. You've been forgiven. There it is. After supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
there's the Holy Spirit. He comes to live within us, take care of us, hold our hands, and help us navigate this very complex world. That's communion. It's a deep sigh. Yes. And that came because of the cross. And you're welcome to come forward and take communion if that's your testimony. You can take the elements here. You can kneel and reflect. You can take it back to your seat. Father, thank you for sending us your son, for bringing us true joy and teaching us how to navigate a world that's hostile to you, but doing it with love and grace and joy so that our friends will find out about you as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen.